Our scripture reading comes from Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, con who is to condemn? It is Christ who died, or rather, who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or distress or perse persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today we have our final sermon in the series, Summer of Love. Um, hopefully I don't go too long, but I thought, ah, there's too many things I need to say about love still. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this sermon series as much as I have. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, send your spirit upon us, that as your scripture has been read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what it is you have to say to us this day. Amen. In 2011, author and non-denominational pastor Rob Bell published his book called Love Wins, Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Lives. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you've read it. In the book, he sticks with the idea that love is the most important aspect of faith. Not heaven, not hell, not pious action or strict rules, but love. Bell writes, God is love. And love is a relationship. This relationship is one of joy, and it can't be contained. Like when you see something amazing and you turn to those you're with and say, isn't that great? Your question is an invitation for them to join you in your joy. The amazement you are experiencing can't be contained. It spills over the top. It compels you to draw others into it. You have to share it. God creates because the endless joy and peace and shared life at the heart of this God knows no other way. Jesus invites us into that relationship. 
the one at the center of the universe. He insists that he is one with God, that we can be one with him, and that life is a generous, abundant reality. This God whom Jesus spoke of has always been looking for partners, people who are passionate about participating in the ongoing creation of the world. So when the gospel is diminished to a question of whether or not a person will get into heaven, that reduces the good news to a ticket, a way to get past the bouncer and into the club. The good news is better than that. Now, about the minute that this book was actually published, there was a firestorm in the evangelical community saying that Bell is trying to write away the reality of sin and the judgment of God, which, by the way, they said is no better than liberal Protestantism. That's us. In an article that I found on BaptistPress.com, Thomas White, Associate Professor of Theology at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, responded to Bell's book by saying, to question such matters as heaven and hell is to question the gospel and the biblical authority that Jesus died a substitutionary death paying the penalty so that man would not spend an eternity paying the penalty for himself. Those who reject Jesus get what they have requested, separation from God. To be clear, I'm not sharing this to widen any gaps of division or to point at anyone else's set of beliefs and say that they're wrong. But I do share this to say that some evangelical Christians, when they heard or they read this book or heard this message, were completely shocked that there was so much grace and relief in it all. Now, for us in the Methodist Church, it's really not new theology. In fact, many of my fellow pastors are like, yeah, I could have written that book and not news to us. That's what we've been saying all along, we said. But for a whole group of people, at least those that didn't completely turn on Rob Bell and call him a heretic, found a new way to view their faith. One that was not based on judgment and punishment, but on love and grace and compassion. Love wins. It's a revolutionary thought and sometimes controversial apparently. Love of all things, not power, not money, not popularity or seniority or skin color or identity or orientation or accident of birth. Love wins. Now the book of Romans from which our scripture came, thank you Jimbo, is commonly thought of as Paul's opus, his masterpiece. The specifics of the situation around which he wrote this remain unclear among biblical scholars. 
But according to N.T. Wright, a large portion of Rome's substantial Jewish population had had to leave the city in 40 CE following rioting that may have resulted from early Christian preaching among the Jewish community in Rome. That expulsion edict came from Emperor Claudius after he died in 54 Common Era, the new Emperor Nero rescinded his decrees, making it possible for the expelled Jews to come home. So we have this situation where the Jews, the Christian Jews, and Jews of any sort were kind of expelled, and then, you know, about 15 years later, invited back home. N.T. Wright writes, Consider the position of the Gentile Christians vis-a-vis non-Christian Jews. The Roman anti-Jewish sentiment for which there is abundant evidence in late antiquity would create a context in which many Romans would be glad to see the Jews gone and sorry to see them return. He goes on to say that it is very likely that the Jewish or the Gentile Christians might have looked upon this ejection of the Jews from Rome in a very theological way. That God had ejected the Jews out of this new covenant altogether. Now before Christ, the Jews were the only one in covenant with God. So maybe now those Gentiles had been written in and the Jews written out. Given this backdrop, Paul's letter to Roman makes all sorts of sense. Here is this church leader trying to persuade theologically to this disparate group, these disparate groups of people that God's love through Christ is for all people, not just Jews and not just Gentiles, but all people. And not even do these different groups merely need to accept each other. They need to find a way to live together that honors God. It is a message that continues to be vital and relevant in our world. Now, many of you know that Jimbo and I have four children, and our older ones, Jeremy and Miranda, even though I claim them fully as my own, they are not my birth children. Their birth mother is Latina. And over the years, we've definitely had to navigate some prejudice and racism. But thankfully, not very often. Now, Miranda works at Joanne Craft store. She's worked kind of off and on there to feed her habit of crafting um, over the last about eight years. And she is an exemplary employee. In fact, usually when she's there, she's some sort of manager, as she is today. Well, this last week, Miranda called me one day in tears because she had been measuring some fabric for someone and cut it. And the gentleman, as she kind of pushed the fabric toward him, said, you know what, I'm going to need that cut 
um, what is it? Measured. Thank you. I'm going to need that measured again because you're Mexican. Just let that sit with you for a minute. Even though she knows deep down that that comment says more about him than it does about her, it still pierced her to the quick. And even as she told the white people that work with her, they just don't understand that this kind of thing happens and how painful it is. They kind of shrugged it off. And so she was in a spin about her own worth that only a call to mama makes right. There is a legendary story about Fred Craddock, who is um, a giant in the preacher world. Sadly, he passed away several years ago, but um, you've heard me speak of him before. The story goes, and I'm not quite sure if it's completely um, accurate or not, but, you know, these kinds of fables spread and, and sometimes get their own um, identity. The story goes that he and his wife were on vacation in Gatlinburg. And they were eating at a local restaurant for breakfast one day, hoping to just spend some time together. As they waited for their meal, they saw this white-haired gentleman that was kind of going around to all these different tables, just kind of saying hi and chatting with people as he made the rounds. And as they were watching, they kind of hoped he wouldn't come to their table. They were on vacation. They just needed a break. Now, he did come over, and the conversation is thought to go something like this. Oh, hi, where are you folks from? And the couple responds, Oklahoma. And the older man says, oh, great to have you in Tennessee. What do you do for a living? Now, at this point, Fred Craddock is more than happy to share that he is a preacher and that he teaches preachers at a seminary because often, if you tell somebody you're a preacher, the conversation shuts down completely. Instead, this gentleman went into another option of what happens when you tell somebody you're a preacher and they tell you a story about themselves. So he pulled up a chair and sat down and said, well, do I have a story for you? He began telling a story about a boy born to an unwed mother who was given up to an orphanage at the age of six. In those days, this would have been a long time ago, it was hard to not know your parentage. For everywhere he went, people would ask, young man, who's your daddy? He usually hid from other kids during recess. He sat alone at lunch. It was a painful existence, and the isolation was deep because he didn't want to tell people he didn't know. He wouldn't go into local shops, and while he did go to church on Sundays, he often slipped in late and left early so that no one would ask him that question that he didn't know the answer to. 
One Sunday, he didn't slip out quickly enough and had to walk out, you know, kind of down that aisle with everybody else. When he reached the door, he felt a hand on his shoulder and heard that dreaded question, son, who's, who's your daddy? Now, the minister was new, apparently, and didn't know about this young man. And when the people around heard this question, everyone got quiet and still embarrassed, especially the young man who squirmed a bit. After a moment, the pastor said, wait a minute, I see the family resemblance. You are a child of God. With that, he squeezed the boy's shoulder and said, Boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. The old man in the restaurant leaned across the table to the couple and said, That boy was never the same again. Whenever anybody asked him, Who's your daddy? He'd answer, I'm a child of God. It's a great story, isn't it? The couple responded genuinely, yes, yes, it is. As the older man got up from the chair and moved on to another table, he said, you know, if that preacher hadn't told me I was one of God's children, I might never have amounted to anything. When the waitress came by, Fred Craddock asked, do you know who that man was? She said, of course, everybody around here knows him. That's Ben Hooper the former governor of Tennessee. Because love wins. And nothing can separate us from God's love. Not power, not money, not popularity, not other people's opinions or seniority or skin color or identity or orientation or accident of birth, not even our own actions can separate us from God because you are a beloved child of God. And that's it. Nothing else matters nearly as much as the love that you are given today through Jesus Christ and every day. Love wins. And there is no better news than that. I pray these have been the words of the Lord for us this day. Amen.